0: podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org, that's b-r-i-t-e-va.org, or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism.
1: Welcome back to the Larger for Life podcast, everyone. It is good to be back with you. Today we have just the three not musketeers, the three Westman steers, steerers. I don't know what we would call ourselves, but uh, one of our co-hosts, Derek Bright, is looking for land. He is going to build a compound and hunting. It's going to be like Dolly World, uh, the way he describes it. So Derek is out today, and our friend Nick is uh, still in the process of moving and getting all his things from Germany. So today, it is me, Stephen Spinnenweber, Senior Pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Jacksonville, Sean Morris, the uh, Right Reverend of Covenant in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Sean, how are you?
0: Doing well, Senor Spinnenweber.
1: I I like the the Spanish-German blend there. And then uh, Matt Adams, how are you? Doing well, Spin. How is uh, the, the sunny
2: lands of Florida? Or as I like to call them, DeSantis land. DeSantis it's land.
1: been very rainy here the last week. And so feels like I'm in the Pacific Northwest. This is as close as Florida gets. Uh, it's supposed to be our dry season, but it's been raining an awful lot. But here's a fun thing before we jump into the episode. I want to give a shout out to our friend Daniel Voss. He's a regular listener and he's a friend of Sean Morris. And Friends of Sean Morris are sometimes friends of mine, but Daniel's an especially cool guy. So he was passing through on uh, his way to a conference here in Florida and worshiped with us on Sunday. And so that was great to meet one of our Larger for Life listeners out in the wild. Daniel, it was great to have you. And now the reason that you came here. I was uh,
0: going to say, speaking of out in the wild, I mean, the thing that Derek's up to today, <clears throat> the thing that he's wanting to build kind of near Aliceville, is that like a Sort of a hybrid between Dollywood and a hunting camp and sort of a militia compound. That's what he's going for, right?
1: It looked I like it was going to be Never Neverland 2.0. It looked like Rumber the DMZ over. between <laughs> North Korea and South Korea, but with like a Dolly World Gatlinburg flair. I, it was cute. So we've got so, like a
0: flapjack house and like a moonshine sampling bar, cotton candy for the kids, but then also
1: there's lots of deer hunting there was a turn on top of said pancake house. So he's having fun today. And and now let's have fun. The reason why everybody came here is we're going to talk about the larger catechism. And this is a big question. It's a short question, but it's a big one. And it's one that if your children or you have memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this is going to sound very familiar to you. It's question 24 in the larger catechism. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. So you can hear the shorter catechism in there, but this is the larger catechism. So we expand a little bit. Sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Matt Adams, take a stab at this. Uh, What do you want us to know about question 24? Yeah,
2: sure. Thanks, Ben. Um, you know, before we get into the the language of any want of conformity unto, that probably is language, if you're not very familiar with the catechisms, that you probably need explaining a little bit more than transgression of, um, because that's how we, we think about sin a lot of ways in the evangelical, the large evangelical world, that it's a, it's a strike out against a law that God has established, Uh, it's a, it's a it's a disobedience, uh, rather, uh, of the laws of God, how, how we have, uh, sinned against him. We have broken, uh, his law. We have broken his, uh, covenant. Uh, and so that's probably the language that we're a little bit more familiar with. Um, because we, we have this kind of natural understanding of, um, there's rules, uh, and then there's ways that we break these rules. I, I, always, you know, I always, uh, use the, use the illustration at first press Dylan, you know, when we, when you go to a community pool, um, you see all those signs along the fence, you know, no lifeguard, no running, no diving, uh, you know, no horse play. And immediately, uh, what do you want to do when you see that sign? Well, you want to break out in a full sprint and you want to dive or cannonball right into uh, the pool. And so we know that is the rules of this community pool, and and then we transgress those rules. We we break those rules. Um and, and so, you know, that might be where we need to to leap off from, I think, uh, just because that's a little bit more familiar, and then we can start uh Teasing out the the language of the larger catechism uh, a little bit more, uh, Sean. Do you want to kind of talk about this idea of of sins of omission and and commission and and how that works in this catechism question? Yeah, let me start with a few Bible verses to to ground and orient our thinking,
0: and then and then start getting us, as you said, thinking in, in terms of the omission and commission category. Uh, there's a number of useful proof texts that our, our catechism supplies, as well as uh, our one of our favorite commentators, Voss. Um, one of them is from 1 John 3, verse 4. And I'm going to read it in a couple different versions, just because I think it's helpful to have that full-orbed uh, semantic familiarity. So in the King James Version, 1 John 3, <laughs> verse 4. The authorized version. The authorized version for our British friends, um, the Canadian authorized version in some quarters. I forget which quarters, but that's a thing, apparently. Anyhow, <laughs> the KJV. First John 3, verse 4, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So there in 1 John, there's something of a formal definition of sin that the Apostle John gives us. Sin is the transgression of the law. And then uh, later versions of Holy Scripture, I should say, later translations of Holy Scripture, like the American Standard or the English Standard, they render it as "Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness." So there we have this indissoluble relation between sin and law, in that it is the sin which exposes the law; it is the sin; it is the law. Uh, which, excuse me, other way around, the law which exposes sin. It is the law which calls sin to mind. It is uh, the law which makes us, uh, heightens that awareness of sin. Uh, Another uh, proof text that's worth mentioning, Galatians 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, "Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law... Is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And then one last one from Romans 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there's this tutorial sense that, that the Apostle Paul really fleshes out, particularly in his letter to the Galatians, but this schoolmaster, this tutor, this, this pedagogue aspect of the law, where God's law makes us aware of our shortness, that the, our fallen shortness, that we have fallen short of God's glory, we have fallen short of his holy standard, we have fallen short of the standard of his law. Well, we may have naively and ignorantly thought that we were doing pretty well, but then the law comes along and exposes our hearts for what they are, that we are sinful creatures. And then it's there's these rules, if you like, these statutes that are given in God's law, And in those verses we read, particularly from Galatians and Romans chapters 3, we see there that there's this holy standard that God has given in his law. We have violated it in a couple different ways, by omission and by commission. That is, omission, by what we have failed to do. God has said, do these things. We don't do them. You shall not bear false witness. Don't tell a lie. We are often untruthful. We are often dishonest. We are often... uh, bearing falsehoods, whether severe or minor, but falsehoods nonetheless. Do this. Well, we've omitted the truth. We've held it back. We're in violation of that ninth commandment. But then also, don't do these things. We've transgressed the law. That's the sin of commission. So we've sinned against God's holy law by what we've failed to do, omission. And we've also sinned against God's holy law by what we have done. When we've made those actual transgressions, you know, when somebody uses the good and glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ as a curse word because they... Mashed their thumb with a hammer as they're doing hardware home improvement projects at home. They violated the third commandment. They've taken the Lord's name in vain. There's a commission sin that they've done there by violating it. But then there's that omission sin, like again, the ninth commandment, where tell the whole truth. Well, I told most of the truth, but I held some of it back. Ah, so you omitted something, and then you were in violation of God's law in that way. So sin exposes our hearts. We may have thought we were doing well, but then the law comes, excuse me, the law, I keep goofing up my, my vocabulary, I apologize. The law exposes our hearts. We may have thought we were doing well, but then the law comes along, exposes these sinful hearts, heightens our awareness, makes us aware, and then we are left without excuse. And that's part of what this, this relation between sin and the law, not that the law is sinful, no, no, no. The law is good and holy because it comes from a good and holy God, but that good and holy law exposes these sinful, fallen hearts of ours to show us how sinful we are indeed.
1: Yeah, when we talk about sin, lots of people will use euphemisms like, I I messed up, or they'll excuse it and say, well, nobody's perfect. Uh, And that's indeed true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Sean has said. And what the law does is it doesn't just tell us what God forbids. We also infer, even from these negative commands, these thou shalt nots, that there is oppositely a thou shall, that's sort of inferred from these commandments. So, John Calhoun, that's Calhoun with a Q. Don't ask me why that is, but that's how it is. John <laughs> Calhoun, he is a, a, a Scottish pastor from, uh, you know, several hundred years ago. And he, in looking at the law of God, is kind of riffing on, ooh, look at that pretty law, treaties on the law and gospel that Reformation Heritage just reprinted. What a cool looking book. We might be giving that away. Is that right, Sean?
0: That's why I've got it here in my hand. I didn't even know
1: you were going to make reference to Calhoun, but sure enough, this is our giveaway book. More on that later. I've been reading through that. I'm actually working on something uh, on the three uses of the law that I hope will be uh, broadly useful, Lord willing. But what the Ten Commandments do is that, uh, this is Calhoun, where duty is required, the contrary sin is forbidden, and where a sin is forbidden the contrary duty is required. So that's what the catechism question means when it says sin is any want of conformity unto. Want means lack, Mm -hmm. any lack of conformity unto or transgression of, that's positively, that's a sin of commission, doing something contrary to the law of God. And this, as Sean said so well, humbles us because you think of the proud Pharisees who in their interpretation of the law, they were taking it at face value. They were saying, look, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't jumped in bed with my neighbor's wife. I haven't stolen anything from anybody. Therefore, because I have refrained from doing those things that on the surface, this commandment forbids, I'm righteous. All of these I've kept since my youth. The rich young ruler, right? Mm -hmm. But what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he says, not only are you guilty of breaking God's law because the commandment and its requirements go much deeper than the letter of the law. They, they didn't keep the spirit of the law. On top of that, these men also did not pursue sins opposite, which is righteousness. So it's not enough just to, as the shorter catechism and the larger catechism will do, talking about what is forbidden in this commandment, but what is required. It's not just enough for me to not murder my neighbor. I need to do everything in my power to protect and maintain the outward estate of myself and my neighbor. And who can say that they've done that perfectly? Who can say that they have kept that second great commandment as Jesus sort of broke down the 10 commandments for us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, not a part, but all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love my neighbor as myself. Not just don't hate my neighbor. Right but love positively your neighbor. We can't do that. So this this catechism question backs us all into a corner where the only way out is grace, right? We're not justified because uh, of our conformity under the law. We certainly haven't done that. Uh, We have transgressed the law. We have overstepped, and there's a plethora of Hebrew terms that kind of describe sin for us Uh, sometimes, uh, it means missing the mark, right? The even the good things that we do are not like the bullseye on the dartboard because maybe we had a bad attitude or we sort of had a prideful motivation, right? That's hata. But then there's also words like um, asham in Hebrew, which means trespassing, overstepping, crossing the line. Like Matt said, as soon as we're told not to do something, because we're sinners suddenly that becomes what we want to do. And, uh, yeah, this, when we come to the law uh, of God and we look at it, when we use the law lawfully, uh, going through those three uses of the law, we realize, yeah, I'm in pretty bad shape. I'm, I'm dead in trespasses and sins and only Christ can save me.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great thing to highlight. And I'll keep this brief because I know Matt's got a, a comment here that he needs to share. Uh, but that that negative and as or excuse me that negative and positive aspect, um, it's not merely a bare forbidding, like you said, of do not commit adultery. Yes, don't do that. But also positively promote the good the good estate of marriage between you and your wife. Seek her good. Seek her. Uh, cultivate that affection. Cultivate the strengths and the bonds of your marriage, and promote the estate of marriage among your neighbors and uh, within your congregation and in your community. Uh, don't just. Uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, but also don't violate it. <laughs> don't do these things which are which are breaking uh, the, the the Lord's day, breaking the Sabbath day. So that which the command says, if it's a if it's a a a proscription, a a prohibition, on the one hand, you know. Uh, don't commit idolatry. Don't make graven images. There's the negative aspect, but then the positive aspect: worship God rightly, worship Him sincerely, worship Him cheerfully. Uh, those those inferences that we draw out from God's law, not just the the bare minimum of what it says in the Decalogue, for example.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things that that Spin was was hitting on, um, and what the Catechism does not allow room for is for us not to feel the gravity of sin. Um you know we, we automatically uh like spin says calls you know we call it a little white lie or you know we we try to downplay it um mostly for our own consciences right or 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 for the sake of uh not wanting to call our our, our four-year-old a liar. Um we're like well it's just a little white lie. Um that comes from a little bit of experience, uh, but <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know, but nonetheless, you know, one of the things that the the catechism's doing is the Westminster Divines wants you to feel the heaviness of this. Um, they they want you to to I'm gonna say a real Dylan word here, okay? Uh, they want you to waller uh, in this. Yeah. Um, they want you, you know, like a pig in the mud, just just sit in it for a second, so that you might understand what the Puritans say. The sinfulness of sin. Um and, and and Ralph Venning uh writes on that and appeared in paperback. Uh and I'm I've always been struck with with this little he he's beginning to apply the doctrine of sin. And he, he just simply says in, in the first heading there in general, sin is the worst of evils, the evil of evils, and indeed the only evil. And then the first sentence says, "Nothing is so evil as sin. Nothing is evil but sin." Um, I mean, there there is no way to to lessen the, the weight, um, lessen the weight uh, of that phrase in and of itself. That 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 sin is is beyond our comprehension of, of evil. Uh, almost, it seems as if the the Catechism is is telling us that, you know, we're we're much more sinful than we think that we are. Um, and like, yeah, like Spin said, I mean, it, it it leaves you in a place where where the only way out is beyond yourself. You have to look outside of yourself. You have to look look to Christ. Um, Ralph Venning says that that sin is the worst of evils. It's worse than death. It's worse than the devil. It's worse than hell. Um, as he begins to apply the doctrine of of sin sinfulness, that that is his first little section. That sin is worse than the devil and worse than hell hmm. because it's cosmic treason against a holy God. Right.
1: Well, you you bring up Ralph Venning, and I raise you the evil of evils by Jeremiah Burroughs. Okay, so it is a battle royale of the Puritans, Sean. Uh, scour your shelves for your favorite Puritan now, but in The Evil of Evils by Jeremiah Burroughs, he is talking too about how sin in its very essence is opposite God. So think of two things in your mind that are opposite each other, oil and water, light and darkness. Uh, John, the gospel writer, especially loves to deal in these contrasts, right? Life and death. Uh, The princess bride is not correct. You're not just mostly dead, you're dead dead, right? And so when we think of sin and when our temptation, and this is always a temptation, right, is we try to self-justify. We try to hold out a little bit of hope. And whether we think this consciously or it's just subconscious, I don't know about you guys, I'm not inside your heads, but I know that sometimes- um From which because, we're so thankful. Right. Uh, <laughs> there's still, even within the breast of a regenerated Christian who's looking to Jesus Christ in saving faith, there is always this temptation to revert back to, a latent works righteousness, right? That I am more right with God based upon my behavior and the things that I'm doing. And so in an attempt to assuage my conscience and to lessen the blow and the weight and the gravity of my sin, like Matt talked about, I'm going to minimize it. But listen to the way that Jeremiah Burroughs talks about sin. He says, so opposite is sin to God. That if God should be but the cause of any sin in any other, even a little thing, a seemingly little thing, he would instantly cease to be a God. It strikes at the very life of God. He would cease to be God because he could be God no longer if he should be the cause of sin in any other. We need to take heed, therefore, how we father sin upon God, saying that he could be the cause of sin, for such is the evil of sin that God must cease to be. If he should be but any cause to give an efficacy to sin in us. So this is pushing back against that temptation that when we sin, we either minimize it or we sort of punt and we blame God. Ever since the garden, we have been playing the blame game. It's this woman you gave me, Lord. This woman right? So it's her fault that you gave me. So he kicks that even further up the chain. But then you go to James chapter one. That wasn't just Adam's issue. It's our issue. Mm -hmm. Don't let anyone say that they're being tempted by God. We are tempted and lured by our own evil desires. So sin is opposite God. He is light and in him, there is no darkness at all. And that just speaks to the beauty of the gospel, doesn't it? That God reconciled rebels he made wretches his treasure, his enemies. Christ died for us while we were still yet his enemies. There was nothing good in us that God said, Matt Adams isn't going to be a good guy. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll come and I'll save him. No, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were rebels by nature, but God through Christ had mercy on us. And so only once you fully appreciate that weight of sin and that burden of sin that we bear Only then can we really understand the weight and the significance and the costliness and the beauty of the gospel and what Christ has saved us from. You know, I
2: think it might be helpful for our listeners. um, And and this is, you know, pretty significant to me uh, just due to my, my Pentecostal background growing up, because there was this idea, right, that you had to Somehow reach a level of of sanctity of righteousness, um, that that you had to be sanctified to be, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and this catechism doesn't doesn't allow us to to think that there is some way to achieve not only you know a workspace salvation, but uh, a a lifestyle that is uh, perfect according to the standards in which God has, uh, set forth for his, uh, creation for his people. You know, I, I was talking with a, a, a local Pentecostal minister, uh, just a few uh, months ago. And, 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 we were talking about this idea of, of sin and, and this idea of sanctification and, and being able to achieve sanctification. And, and I said, you know, brother, we, we always, uh, we are, Always falling short of the standard in which God has called us to live in righteousness. Um, We're we're not the, you know, we're not the fathers that we ought to be. We're not the husbands that we ought to be. We, uh, we don't repent as we ought to do. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you list the things, right? We don't love God and love neighbor, uh, as we've said already in this episode, as as God has commanded. And so we're always falling short of His standard. And then we're, you know, constantly striking out against his law. And then, you know, this this Pentecostal minister pushed back on that. He goes, I actually think that in my life I've gone days, if not weeks, if not months without sinning against God in some way. And, and that is a very distorted view of the doctrine of sin. Hmm. Um, we we if we understand what the Catechism is saying here, uh, especially in in regards of this, you know, the the law is a tutor, right? It, it shows us our sinfulness, uh, but praise the Lord, it also shows us Christ. We we see how we fail the law, uh, we we transgress the law, we fall short of the law standards, and Christ fulfills it. And so it really, it really hinders the gospel. When we begin to think that somehow we can achieve some sort of uh, some sort of plateau, if you will, of of sanctification, where where we are living these these sinless lives, uh, but also at the same time, I don't want to be discouraging to our listeners because you know even though we fall short of God's standards, there are ways in which we can live unto righteousness that is pleasing to the Lord, right? Yeah. Um, it's not perfect. Uh, of course, it's not perfect. We're not going to be fully holy and righteous until we reach uh, the glory lands of heaven. But, but there is a way in which we can strive for, pursue righteousness, uh, live uh, mortifying our sin, mortifying our flesh, and, and, and really uh, looking unto Jesus. Um, and Thomas Watson uh, yet again, another Puritan and another Puritan paperback. In in the godly man's picture, he says that, or he's encouraging uh, his readers actually that there is a way to live that is pleasing to God in light of this gravity of sin. and And he says, when we're striving for holiness and we're you know walking closely with the Lord, while it might not be perfect, um. It's in those moments that that the Father puts Christ the Son upon the scales. He says, and 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 He deems us uh, righteous. He deems us holy. Uh, he counts to us the righteousness of Christ uh, because of our justification in Him. So, I think Spin wants to pose a question here uh, that we can talk about.
1: No prefacing. So we're just gonna, you know, Sean. Have a Puritan ready, maybe, Uh, but, okay, we say that sin is any want of conformity unto or a transgression of the law of God. So what do we do with those good works of unbelievers, those things that unbelievers do that we would say are good, like, hey, maybe this unbeliever is very uh, philanthropic and they give lots of money to this charitable organization that, rescues women from uh, sex trafficking or builds orphanages in Africa or digs wells in Africa. Are we saying that that's sin, you know, uh, should we discourage people who are unbelievers from doing good things? Because after all, like, you know, sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So how do we reconcile what this catechism question says with those applaudable things that, even our unbelieving neighbors do and perform.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, I think we should start by saying we should never discourage people from doing virtuous things, whether they're believers or unbelievers. Always encourage your neighbors. I mean, if they're asking the question, should I should I do good here or should I go, you know, push a grandma down the stairs? N- no, you should you should do good. Give give to that charity by all means. I think though that at the deeper level, we just have to reckon and help people reckon. With the reality of our own utter insufficiency outside of Christ, I, I don't know that we fully appreciate natural man's fallenness, his his depravity, the the utterly unsatisfying nature of even his best of works outside of Christ. The fact that no matter how good you might do, no matter how well you might do, how much good you might do, Mister. Um, billionaire philanthropist who donates 300 billion dollars to alleviate uh, children's uh, diseases and 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 starvation in Africa great good that is a good thing but outside of Christ it is still fallen short no matter how noble your aspirations no matter how noble your efforts before a holy God even your best of deeds outside of Christ. Don't measure up, and I don't know. I don't know that we fully appreciate that reality until Scripture grips our hearts with it.
2: Yeah, I think I think you nailed it, uh, Sean. You know the the donor who donated one hundred sixty six million dollars to Texas A and M, their athletic department, to fire Jimbo Fisher last week. Uh, that is not going to earn him favor in the sight of the Lord, right? Um, I mean, you know. Th- Texas A and M Aggies. They are celebrating now that that Jimbo Fisher is no longer their football coach. This is a sports illustration, Sean. I'm sorry, it's a sport I should have Ball. Do you know? Well, he knows Texas. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, it's okay, sports, coach. Don't sports don't
0: ball. That's like it's like water polo, where they they like ride the horses in their pool or something like that. Is that right?
2: Something like that. Yeah, okay, that's great. exactly. That's what we're exactly. Jimbo about. Fisher was a sports ball coach, and uh, he did not train his players to ride their horses properly in the water. Yes. So he got fired. Yes. I'm glad you're with us,
0: Sean. Grievous mistake. See, y'all make fun of me. Listen, baseball has been my game since a child. Baseball. That's that's the sport to which I pay the most attention. So well done, Texas. Congratulations. What I want to see is a rematch against Cleveland and Chicago. They used to be called the Indians. Now they're called the Guardians. So Guardians and Cubs, that was a what was that, five, six years ago? Great series. Game seven. Extra innings and it was tied up, and then mm, the Cubs pulled it off. And you know, it's, it was hard to be mad at them because they'd gone over 100 years without winning a series, but now it's Cleveland's turn. So let's make it happen.
1: But you, 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 are you saying, are you confessing that you're from the state of Ohio? No, that you are pulling for an Ohio sports team. I, that I sounds have, like, you're an admission that you are. In fact, for those of you that don't know, <laughs> Sean is on a mission to persuade everyone that Ohio. Does not exist that the United States has only 49 states and that Ohio is something like the DMZ of the Midwest. And so for him to root for an Ohio sports team is really, really telling, I think. Of Sean,
0: I'm, I mean, there's a t shirt out there that says Ohio isn't real. And so if you see if it's on a t shirt, how can it be false? Moreover, my parents. We're from Ohio. And so I was reared in an environment that pulled for Cleveland sports team, at least baseball. No one no one pulled for the Browns. But, you know, their evidence is scant that I am from Ohio. But my parents were. So I was I was a I was raised in a Ohio conscious sort of environment. But that's 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 really
2: all that the forensic
0: evidence can prove.
2: This this sounds like, you know, trying to deny to deny that that crazy aunt, you know, that's my mom's sister. You know, that's your aunt. No, 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 no. It's my mom's sister. My parents raised me in Ohio, but I'm not actually from Ohio. That's right. Uh, T.D. Gordon has
0: this this great one-liner where he'll be making fun of himself and he'll say something to the effect of, yeah, there we were at Thanksgiving. And once again, my wife's husband was just an absolute jerk. And I hate when he does
1: that. So Sorry, Lee Hutchins, uh, for all of these, you know, swipes at the, the great state of Ohio, the Ohio Presbytery. If you ever want to get a, a laugh out of a Presbyterian, Just put the definite article in front of anything, and it is sure to please. So I asked this question because uh, I grew up Lutheran, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So I had sort of that alphic tongue of Luther, you know, a very guilty conscience. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did my time as a Southern Baptist and then uh, dated and married a Presbyterian gal. And I, for the longest time, wondered like, okay, even post-conversion, I'm still a sinner. And my works, even those those obedient works that I do, not so as to justify myself before the bar of God's justice, but even out of gratitude and thanksgiving, like they're still imperfect. There's still a mingling of sin there. And when I came to Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 16, Section 6 on Good Works, it just revived my soul. It is my favorite chapter and section. In all the Westminster Confession. But riffing on and kind of coming out of that question that I asked Sean, Westminster Confession, chapter 16, section seven, it reads this Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands, like caring for the outward estate of your neighbor, like Mm -hmm. the person who gives charitably, and of good use both to themselves and others. Yet, Because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner, according to the word of God, nor to a right end, the glory of God. They are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God. And yet, and Sean said this, the neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. So we should not discourage are unbelieving neighbors from performing those things that for the manner of them, they are good, right? They are good per se. Although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands, but we do want to just draw a very clear line and say, but these don't pass. Uh, God requires perfect personal and perpetual obedience, as this question says, to all or any of his commands. And These are given to reasonable creatures. That is, it doesn't say just to Christians. Yeah. All man, by virtue of having been made in God's image, owe him a debt of obedience. And we fall short of that, even in the good things we do. Calvin, I think, said of sin or the good things that the unbeliever does, he calls them splendid sins. For the manner of them, Mm. something that God commands but sinful because it's not done in the way that God says or for the high motivation of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of times, and, and this is just what you were touching on, we fail to appreciate what we as creatures owe to God in terms of obedience, creaturely obedience. We're not, we're not even quite getting into the notion of Christian obedience, uh, of the of what a regenerate heart should render to God, but just by virtue of the fact that you are a creature, you human being... Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, you are a creature of God, and by virtue of that fact, you owe him creaturely obedience. I I don't know that we just appreciate how much we owe God, and and these things that we ought to be doing are bare duties that we should render unto him by virtue of our creatureliness. My mind was drawn to Luke 17, uh, starting at verse 7, you know, Jesus speaking there to his disciples, "'Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, When he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants and we have only done what was our duty. Uh, I think that, that passage from Luke's gospel gets to the heart of what good, virtuous, ethical things done by even non-believers, how they measure up in the economy
1: of Almighty God, if we can phrase it that way. In our Coffee with Calvin, our, our men's group that uh, we have on Tuesday mornings, we've been going through book three of the institutes where Calvin is really hammering away way at justification by grace alone through faith alone, and how justification can only be by the gratuitous um, act of God, that is his imputing the righteousness of Christ to us through faith. And he just really, uh, it, it's funny, he says, I'll be brief. And then I counted how many words after brief it was, it was 7,900 words. That's brevity Fantastic. for Calvin. But he, he just keeps going on and talking about, uh, hey, these works that you think that you can perform, like, Look at what the Bible says. None will be justified according to works of the law. If you break just a part of it, you've broken all of it. And and the way I illustrate that is, okay, so you mean to tell me that if I perfectly kept the law of God in every area but one, how am I guilty of having broken all of it? Like how am I regarded a transgressor? Think of Matt Adams. Do you still have your Pokemon cards from your childhood? I feel like you do, just looking at you.
2: Childhood? What You mean like what? Last week? I was I was playing Pokemon Go, catching Pokemon outside the church right before we started this episode, actually.
0: Yeah, you and Kyle Kyle, you and Kyle Brent both do on the Pokemon Go tournament.
2: (laughs) No, I gave them to my six year old. Pokemon's
1: making a little bit of a comeback. It it's oh, it is rife here in our church. I'm I'm not persuaded that it's, you know, conjuring up demons yet, but if I get real tired of these kids, uh (laughs) I might just you know, say that from the pulpit. But if you take, I, I saw this on eBay the other day, it is a Charizard, a holographic Charizard card from our childhood, right? This thing's like original yeah. and it's mint, $10,000. Oh, good grief. What if you bend just one corner, suddenly it becomes valueless, hmm. right? Like it's just like any anything else. So if you break just one law, you don't have to like rip the whole thing in shreds, but if you break just even one little law, Or even if you don't obey quickly enough, you don't obey with, Calvin says, the requisite alacrity. You don't, you're like, I don't really don't want to, like you just, you, you kind of drag your feet in your obedience. Um, That righteousness that you would give to God, it's, it's not mint. God needs mint righteousness. And so Mm -hmm. he won't accept that corners. And, and, and we say like, is that, is God just being fussy? Like is, is God being overly critical and censorious, like does God need to lighten up? And and we would say no, because he's holy and he wouldn't be God if he tolerated our sin. Like, you know, our sin's not swept under the rug. It's nailed to the cross with Christ. And so that's how justice and mercy meet. They kiss at the death of our Lord Jesus. So if you're trying, listener, to be justified or plead to your righteousness in any any way, um, look at all the other ways in which you're unrighteous, and then look to Jesus alone for your righteousness.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely right. What what you just said is that that impulse or that that knee jerk sort of uh, objection, that kind of attitude. And I get it, because we're all guilty of it, so this is not me wagging the finger at anybody else, it's wagging my finger at myself. It's it's a failure to, to appreciate the overwhelming reality of God's holiness. I mean, this is what R.C. Sproul devoted his life to in his ministry at Ligonier, is he recognized that the wider evangelical church had a failure to appreciate God's holiness. We, we thought, well, yeah, we sin, but we're really not that bad. Well, that kind of attitude, or the can't can't God take a ninety five? A ninety five is still an A? You just that kind of attitude betrays the reality that we have failed to understand how utterly holy God is, what holiness even means in, in purity, in perfection, and how Far short of that holiness, even our best standard, even our best of efforts falls. We there's there's a chasm that is that's unimaginable. I mean, billions and billions and billions of miles stand between God and His holiness and your most perfect, best day of your life. That I mean, just you can't cross that that chasm.
2: Yeah, I know. I know we're going to be wrapping up here soon, but that it, you referencing R.C. Sproul and and then spin, you know, shouldn't God just light up? You, I mean, we. Remember that that famous YouTube clip, right, of the Ligonier conference, and essentially that question was asked of the panel uh, during the Q and A session at the Ligonier conference. You know, was you know was God fair in his treatment of Adam and Eve uh, as he kicked them out of the garden? And and Doctor Sproul shouts out, and I actually have a, a ref tunes coffee mug of this. Uh, What's wrong with you people? Uh, and it's and it's this idea that. You don't understand the holiness of God and you don't understand the sinfulness of sin. Um, That's why, you know, I I love and it's not original to me. I don't know who it's original to. That's why I just I love considering and and referencing sin as cosmic treason. It's treason against the creator God who is holy um, just to help try to to feel the gravity uh, of of our iniquities, I guess. Sin's a big deal because God's a big God. Yes, that, that's exactly
0: right. Put Two that in your things. pipe and smoke it. Mm. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, and that is worth musing on. Two quick things before we wrap up, just because I, I think we might have a few listeners curious about this as, as they read through this question, and and Voss points this out in his commentary. It's good to make a distinction between crime and sin and how there's some overlap there. Um how he puts it is that, strictly speaking, sin is violation of the law of God, whereas crime is violation of the law of the state. Um, You'll read many older works, maybe some of the Puritans and others, where they will use crime and criminal in the sense of sin and sinful, but uh, in our modern parlance that is a distinction worth making. Now, something can be a sin and a crime at the same time, like murder or theft, for example. That's both a crime and a sin, a violation of God's law and the law of your state. Uh, but something, on the other hand, might be a sin and not be a crime. For example, you might hate your brother. Well, there's no there's no necessarily a law here in the United States against that, because at least for now, they can't read your mind, So, but that's still a violation of the law of God for you to hate your brother. Um, but then likewise, there might be things, or I should say, on the flip side, there might be things that are crimes and not sins. Uh, and of course, Voss, coming out of that Covenanter tradition, he gives the example from the Covenanter's own history. Scotland, 250, 300 years ago, you had these Covenanters, these these Scottish Presbyterians who were put in prison or even killed because they assembled to worship God without the permission of the king. So that's a crime against the law of state, but it is very much not a sin against God to worship uh, the Lord, their Savior. So it, there's a there's a distinction there that's worth making between crimes and sins in our, our catechism helps us understand that a, a bit better as well. And then finally, right there at the end of the catechism question, um, given as a rule to the reasonable creature, what does the catechism mean by reasonable creature, guys? Is it talking about temperament? You know, we we all have unreasonable people in our lives where you you try to make a point with them and they just won't hear it. Is it talking about those kind of reasonable people where they just have a, a an agreeable temperament about them? Or is that what the catechism means
1: by reasonable? No. <laughs> He's talking about... Uh man indiscriminately of whether he's converted or not. And uh, that's where we get into this little sticky situation on how far does the law apply to whom does the law apply? And there is an intramural discussion, you know, among reformed Christians about, okay, uh, what does the law or what does the state enforce concerning the moral law? And then what is sort of the peculiar responsibility of the church? Uh, That's, generally kind of broken down in commandments one to four responsibilities of the church and then the general responsibilities of the state wherein it can exercise the sword, commandments six through uh, five through 10. Uh, so, but we would say that life works best the way that God has designed it and that the law of God is not just good for me, it's also good for thee. And my neighbor, unconverted as he may be, is still a reasonable creature, still a reasonable creature, still made in the image of God. And so God doesn't say, okay, only Christians are required to keep all 10 commandments. When Jesus returns one day and recall before the judgment seat, he's not just going to judge us on the basis of a handful of commandments. He's going to judge all men on whether or not they kept the 10 commandments. And frankly, all men will be guilty But only those who have been justified through Jesus Christ, who did keep all Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed. He didn't just refrain from doing what was forbidden. He did everything that was required. Think how amazing that is. Those will be openly acknowledged and acquitted at the last day. Only those who have their faith in Jesus. So all reasonable creatures, even if Matt Adams can be pretty unreasonable and unruly on the podcast, God's law is uh, still a binding obligation, even on him. That's right. Even
0: on unreasonable, semi-irrational people like Matt. That's a great way to put it. Re- reasonable or rational creatures like angels or men, that's that's what regarding these kinds of creatures are given God's laws. Well guys, we've gone a little bit over 45 minutes here, so I think this is a good place for us to wind her down as we've thought about what sin is, uh, as, it, as the shorter catechism puts it, any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. And in the next episode, we're going to be thinking about the effects of sin, Uh, What sin has done is it's plunged mankind into misery, the the, the effects that sin has on our mind, our souls, our emotion, our thoughts, our feelings, all the above. So we'll think about that a little bit more in the next episode. Before we wrap up, as we hinted at earlier, we do have a free giveaway. This is a book care of our friends at Reformation Heritage Books in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and also care of our friends at the uh, Deeply Rooted Conference in Kingsport, Tennessee, who made a number of these copies available to us uh, as giveaways here for the show. So it's The Law and the Gospel, that's the title, The Law and the Gospel, by John Colquhoun, uh, he lived from 1748 to 1827. He was, an ordain, he was ordained as minister of St. John's in South Leith in 1781, where he served for 46 years as a minister in the Church of Scotland. Classic treatment on the law and the gospel, thinking about some, touching on the things that we've, been, or rather, it's thinking about some of the things that we've been touching on, even in this very episode regarding law and gospel, uh, perennially important categories uh, in the wider church, but even in the Reformed Church, where folks still sometimes there's category confusion uh, regarding law and gospel. So, great book. Uh, we're going to have several copies of this to give away, but as you listen to this episode, if you would be so kind as to uh, share the post, whether on Facebook or Twitter, share it on social media, the the relevant post for this episode, and you will be entered into a drawing uh, to win a free copy of this book. We'll send it to you. Also, a word to the wise, just just so some of y'all are aware, I think some of y'all have privacy settings on Facebook or Twitter where we can see that this has been shared. Like it'll say, this has been shared nine times, but then there's only six or seven names that pop up. So some of y'all have privacy settings arranged in such a manner where we can't see if you've shared it or not. And of course, it's your social media account. You run it the way you want to. but. Some of your names are not being entered into the drawing because we can't see if you shared it. So apologies for that. If you're trying to enter uh, to win a giveaway copy, um, if you want to, some of you might want to just double check your your uh, privacy settings on social media. So
2: I'm I'm actually the one doing that, Sean, on our end, so that I'm trying to stack the deck better for me to win the free books. That's what it is.
0: That's what it is. Yeah. It's the it's the multiple Matt Adams accounts because there's like. Matt Adams, Matthew Adams, Maddie Adams, there's all these and they keep all sharing on Maddie posts. Ice. That's my Maddie favorite Ice. one, Maddie Ice. Yeah. Maddie Ice, they keep sharing these things and and no, we're not going to do it folks. These books are for you. They're not for the they're not for the in-house punks here in the studio. These books are for you no matter what Matt
1: Adams tries to do. The larger for life gift exchange this year is going to be dope. I got <laughs> myself a foot bath. I'm really psyched to use it. It's like that. I'm more than a little bit frightened to do a white elephant gift exchange
0: with the likes of Derek Bright and Nick Bullock. Who oh.
2: <laughs> at the same time? <laughs> I don't Obviously, know. Who's we that don't name. even want to comment on on what we think that Derek Bright might try to might try to buy us. There's a All reason
0: right. that this subject has come up in the
1: episode on sin. I'll just leave it at that. It's well, fitting. It's it's most fitting. So. Uh, Yeah, please turn off your privacy settings, show the world how much you love the Larger for Life (laughs) podcast, and we'll give you books. We won't give them to Matt Adams. Uh, We're very thankful that you joined us today. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you next time on the next episode of Larger for Life. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger
0: Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash larger for life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life.